Despite facing an indictment for mishandling classified documents, former President Trump hits the campaign trail. He's due in court tomorrow. It's Monday, June 12th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, it could take months before a collapsed section of Interstate 95 in Philadelphia is reopened. Also, Congress looks to tighten federal child labor laws. If a labor inspector goes to a farm today and finds a 12-year-old working a 14-hour shift in a tobacco field, there's really nothing that inspector can say. And this hour. I have wanted this my entire life. each and every one of you in this room right now. Lynn, Massachusetts native Alex Newell becomes the first non-binary performer to win the Tony Award for Best Featured Actor in a Musical. Increasing clouds near 80 today. It's 7.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Korva Coleman. Ukraine says it has started its long-anticipated counteroffensive against Russian forces. There have been few details about the military action, but NPR's Greg Myrie says it started by Ukrainian troops recapturing four small Ukrainian villages. This is the very first salvo of what's expected to be the biggest battle of the war, one likely to play out for much of this summer, if, if not beyond. And it's shaping up uh, the way many predicted. Uh, looks like Ukraine wants to drive to the southeast coast. This would cut the Russian forces in half, one group to the east, one to the south, and and leave the Russians much more vulnerable. NPR's Greg Myrie reporting. Italy's former prime minister, Silvio Berlusconi, has died, according to his own television network. He was 86 years old and had suffered from leukemia. Berlusconi was wealthy and often boastful. He was Italy's longest-serving premier, despite scandals over his sex parties known as Bunga Bunga parties. All but one criminal case against him languished through slow court proceedings in Italy, or he won on appeal. Police in Scotland have released the country's former first minister, Nicola Sturgeon, from arrest. They did not charge her. Willem Marx reports police say they will continue their investigation. Sturgeon was first arrested Sunday morning in relation to a long-running police investigation into the finances of the Scottish National Party she'd led until earlier this year. She was questioned by detectives for several hours, then released, and later issued a statement that described the experience as, quote, both a shock and deeply distressing when she was, quote, certain she had committed no offence. At the centre of the police inquiry that has lasted two years is over $750,000 in party donations earmarked for pro-independence campaigns. Her husband, the party's former CEO, had also previously been arrested and released without charge, as was the party's former treasurer. For NPR News, I'm Willem Marks. Authorities in Houston are looking for a suspect accused of opening fire on a crowd of people who were leaving a nightclub. Houston Public Media's Rob Salinas reports victims scattered as police quickly rushed to the scene. A dispute inside the club spilled outside as a gunman began firing randomly into a group of people in the parking lot. Six people were hit by bullets when the gunman opened fire. Houston police working security jobs nearby arrived quickly to provide first aid to the victims and secure the area. The gunman escaped, but security footage captured much of the carnage. Houston Police Chief Troy Finner offered this advice. It's so, so smart to leave the clubs and the bars before it closes. When there are problems, a lot of times it's in the parking lots after it closes. For NPR News, I'm Rob Salinas in Houston. Pennsylvania Governor Josh Shapiro says he'll issue a disaster declaration today. It follows yesterday's fiery collapse of part of an overpass on a major freeway in Philadelphia. A fuel truck caught fire underneath an Interstate 95 overpass. 
It's NPR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. This is WBUR in Boston. A Brockton man accused of shooting a Boston police officer is due in court today. 23-year-old John Lazare faces charges for the Friday shooting in Roxbury. Police say Lazare was attempting an armed robbery when officers intervened. One officer was shot during the altercation. The officer's injuries are not life-threatening. Their name has not been released. Those slow zones on the T aren't going anywhere soon. Speed restrictions have been in place since March because of problems with the tracks. And WBUR's Andrea Perdomo Hernandez reports the T isn't ready to release its comprehensive plan to lift them just yet. The T's general manager, Phil Ang, says he's working on a way to show plans to lift speed restrictions without creating anxiety for people who may be affected by repair closures. I don't think it's about ensuring one line is completely back to where we want to. It's ensuring that we start to restore as a system that reliability to it. While Ang didn't offer a timeline for lifting slow zones, he did share what lines crews will be focusing on in the coming weeks. At least for this near term, it's the immediate worst locations on red and green. Information about service disruptions can be found at mbta.org. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Andrea Perdomo-Hernandez. State cannabis regulators want to make it easier for military veterans to join the medical marijuana program. Regulators tell the Boston Herald that cannabis may be a safer pain management tool for veterans than opioids. They'll consider removing registration fees and expanding the program qualifications to include more veterans. Organizers of this weekend's Pride Parade in Boston are calling the event a success. The new group, Boston Pride for the People, organized the celebration. Its goal was to be more diverse and more inclusive. Adriana Bolin is the group's president. She says a number of different LGBTQ communities and groups were invited to join the planning process. Different communities that we went to, like our youth, our older adults, just for examples, all of them had a feeling of, we so appreciate being asked what we want our role to be in what we want in Pride. It was beautiful. Bolin says some 10,000 people marched in this year's parade. It was the first full Pride parade in Boston since 2019. It's 7.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by BMW. The BMW i4 has a range of up to 301 miles. It's 100% electric and 100% BMW. And Fort Point Arts Community, celebrating living and working in the state's oldest artist co-op building. Visit now through August 11th, Atlantic Wharf Gallery. FortPointArts.org. The Red Sox needed one extra inning, but they were able to beat the Yankees last night. The final in the Bronx was 3-2 to two in 10 innings. Boston took two out of three games from New York over the weekend. The Sox will return home tonight to host the Colorado Rockies. Cloudy and near 80 today. Showers and maybe even a thunderstorm overnight. Temperatures will be in the 60s. Cloudy with another chance for showers tomorrow in the 70s. Right now it's 64 degrees in Boston. Thanks for starting your day with WBY. WBUR supporters include the Lodestar Foundation, inspired by the principle that helping someone else less fortunate is a path to a happier, healthier, and more meaningful life. Learn more at lodestarfoundation.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Falden. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Former President Trump appears in federal court in Miami tomorrow. 
He spent the weekend in the court of public opinion. He used presidential campaign events to reject a 37-count indictment related to his handling of classified documents. The indictment detailed nuclear and defense secrets that Trump took to his home and didn't return when asked. It included photos of documents stacked in a bathroom and on a ballroom stage. But in appealing to Republican voters, Trump called the indictment baseless. Other presidential candidates are appealing to those same Republican voters. So how do they talk of the indictment? NPR's Domenico Montanaro has been listening. Hey there, Domenico. Hey, Steve. So what do you say when your presidential rival is indicted? Well, you'd think it'd be very different, actually, because for the most part, they're going after the Justice Department. Mm. Uh, Now, we've seen some criticism from uh, Chris Christie, the former New Jersey governor, and former Arkansas governor Asa Hutchinson. Christie called the facts in the indictment devastating. Uh, Hutchinson says that Trump should drop out. But they're really in the minority in their party and at this point have pretty limited support. Instead, here was Trump's chief rival, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, during a speech in North Carolina. Our founding fathers would have absolutely predicted the weaponization that we've seen with these agencies, particularly justice and FBI, because when you don't have constitutional accountability, human nature is such that they will abuse their power. And there he essentially defending Trump. DeSantis arguing also that the DOJ's prosecutions aren't just about people at the top, but regular people too, even though there's really no evidence of that. It's really just a fear tactic that hews closely to Trump's messaging. Presumably this plays on the feelings of Republican-based voters. Definitely. You have a lot of anger in the base, and that's really been drummed up by Trump. You know, they believe him. Some supporters are even using violent rhetoric to defend him. And that's what the candidates are needing to navigate. The big question really is, though, if his rivals aren't willing to take on Trump directly on his mounting legal woes, how do they differentiate themselves? I mean, they're allowing Trump to continue to be the big fish in this GOPC and drive the narrative with no repercussions politically. Okay, so when Trump tries to drive the narrative, at least as seen on right-wing media, Mm -hmm. and before crowds that come to see him, how does he defend himself? Well, he received extended applause, for example, and was greeted like a conquering hero during a speech that he made this weekend before the Georgia Republican Party. He blasted the Justice Department and made some pretty dubious claims along the way. Let's take a listen. The ridiculous and baseless indictment of me by the Biden administration's weaponized Department of Injustice will go down as among the most horrific abuses of power in the history of our country. Many people have said that. Democrats have even said it. Well, I mean, no Democrats have said that, but that seems to matter very little. I mean, the speech was Trump as the candidate of, I'm rubber, you're glue, say something about me, and I'll say it right back at you. Mm -hmm. You know, for example, he and many of his boosters are the ones who have spread myths and disinformation. He lost the election and popular vote by millions of votes, and he didn't cooperate with the Justice Department to give classified documents back. And yet, he accused Democrats of being the party of disinformation, claimed to have won the election by millions of votes, and said it was actually President Biden who didn't cooperate with the DOJ, all of which is patently false. But this is what Trump has been able to do, convince his supporters he's actually been aggrieved, even when he's done things that would have sunk nearly any other candidate. That's NPR senior political editor and correspondent Domenico Montanaro. Domenico, thanks. It's always a pleasure to hear your insights. Oh, you're so welcome. Thanks, Steve. Let's bring in Ankush Kadori. He's a former federal prosecutor in the Justice Department and a contributing writer for Politico. Ankush, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So how strong is this case against Trump? 
Well, I think it's important to remember that an indictment is just a set of allegations, mm -hmm. and the government has to establish these allegations at trial. But within the four corners of this indictment, I think what we see is a, uh, a very exhaustive investigation, one that's gathered a variety of different types of evidence and fairly potent types of evidence, including um, audio recordings, material from Trump's own lawyer, the photos from Mar-a-Lago, um, to say nothing of the documents themselves. And you know, I think that this indictment, just on its face, is a very impressive document and one that um, I think many Americans, if they can find the time, should try to read because it is, I think, a document that is intended for consumption by the American public. Now, you and I have read this indictment. It's more than 40 pages. pages. What stood out to you when you were looking through it? The um, crystal clear nature of the narrative. Mm -hmm. These documents are very hard to draft in a way that are sort of intelligible. And I thought that the prosecutors did a very good job of laying out um, the narrative in a way that made clear the intentionality of Trump's alleged misconduct and the scope of the alleged obstruction. Um, and then again, too, the sort of variety of types of evidence, including material that'll be very hard for Trump to run away from if it's admitted at trial, uh, including, for instance, the audio recording of him showing a document to someone in his office and the material from his own lawyer, Evan Corcoran. Now, if he were to be found guilty of these charges, what kind of sentence might he receive? That is a very, very open question, right? Mm -hmm. So the most serious charge uh, carries a 20-year statutory maximum. Now, that's not a very helpful way of thinking about these things. I think, you know, comparable cases involving other government officials that have gone to trial and resulted in gu guilty verdicts have ended up with real uh, terms of imprisonment in the, you know, single or mid-single-digit uh, uh, years of imprisonment. But of course, Trump is a unique defendant. He's a right. first-time offender. He was former president. There are very complex legal and factual issues that I expect to be aired out during the course of this trial. And ultimately, the sentence that a judge issues is very much up to their very wide discretion. As you point out, this is pretty historic, unprecedented, former president running for president. Um, what happens if he's convicted and then reelected? Does he go to prison or the Oval Office? Uh, I think that the odds that Trump is uh, imprisoned as long as he's a active presidential candidate are very, very low. Um, the reason is uh, on the front end of this, there's going to be quite a path between here where we are now to a potential trial. It's going to be very hard to even schedule a trial when you factor in the political calendar next year and concerns mm -hmm. about interfering with the political process. But even if a trial and a conviction resulted during the campaign season, here too, the judge has a lot of discretion to allow post-trial briefing, um, months uh, uh, can go by before sentencing is even completed, and then she can leave, or it's currently a she, uh, the judge presiding, she can allow Trump to remain out uh, uh, on bail even while his uh, case is pending on appeal. Mm -hmm. So there's no mandatory term of imprisonment on any of the charges, and she would be under no obligation to send him immediately to prison upon a conviction. So is that why, I mean, you've written in Politico that Trump's own re-election effort might be his best defense. Is that why? Yeah, it is. I mean, this is a complex case, serious charges, uh, of course. And uh, in the ordinary circumstance, you would expect a very, very convoluted uh, litigation to occur here, both pre and post trial. But for Trump, his easiest way out of this is to get reelected, pardon himself or direct his attorney general to shut down the case and call it a day. How does this case compare to Trump's indictment in New York in the scheme to arrange hush money payments for the adult film actress Stormy Daniels? Well, it's clearly more serious, right? I think uh, those of us who are sort of close watchers of the New York courts 
I think, assume that even if Trump were convicted in that case, it's very, very unlikely that he would actually be sentenced to any term of imprisonment. Um, but in addition, you know, I think that this federal indictment is much more accessible to lawyers and to the public. We understand the conduct. We understand why it would be criminalized. The way that the government has used the statutes is not, uh, they haven't been deployed in an unusual or novel way. And kind of all of those things uh, surround the Manhattan case. Um, and has, I think, contributed to the somewhat ambivalent public reception around that document. This one is quite different to me. You know, one of the things we're hearing from Trump and others who are defending him is that, well, what about Hillary's emails and what about the classified documents that Biden had? Does this indictment, does this case compare at all? Is there a comparison to be made? Is that fair? Uh, I really, yeah, I, I really, I don't think so at all. I mean, the scope of what was taken, the intentionality, alleged intentionality behind it, um, and there is nothing comparable in either of those other fact patterns to the alleged obstruction on the part of Trump and his integral uh, involvement in that alleged obstruction. So I, I don't have much patience for the comparisons, to be honest. I think they're just political, uh, uh, politically motivated talking points. Ankush Kadori is a former federal prosecutor and a contributing writer for Politico. Thanks for your time. Thank you for having me. Drivers in Philadelphia have to find their way around a closed section of Interstate Highway this morning. A section of I-95 collapsed after a tanker truck caught fire under an overpass. NPR's Joe Hernandez takes us there. A police officer directs traffic in the Torresdale neighborhood of Philadelphia. It's where drivers like Bob Rudden are being diverted off I-95 and onto city streets. Rudden is pretty optimistic about the traffic so far. Not bad at all yet. But this week? Well, this weekend it's going to be hell when they all go down the shore. Troy Lapo was on his way to a Phillies game when he got detoured. I mean, 95 is always under construction, but uh, never like this for sure. This is insane. <laughs> it took authorities about an hour to extinguish the tanker truck fire. The extreme heat scorched the highway and caused all of the elevated northbound lanes to cave in on the road below. The southbound lanes were heavily damaged. Pennsylvania Governor Josh Shapiro says he surveyed the site from above. Remarkable devastation. And I found myself, you know, thanking the Lord that uh, no motorists who were on I-95 um, were injured or died. Uh, just a, a remarkably devastating sight. I-95 runs from Maine to Florida, and this section of interstate sees about 160,000 vehicles per day. Shapiro says the damage won't be fixed for months. A similar highway collapse in Atlanta in 2017 took six weeks to repair. In the meantime, the area's transit agency, SEPTA, is adding more cars per train to its regional rail line serving the area. Leslie Richards is SEPTA's general manager. We are all going to need some extra patience in the coming days. Please work with us as we work through this. The incident is under investigation by the National Transportation Safety Board and the Pennsylvania State Police. Joe Hernandez, NPR News, Philadelphia. This is NPR News. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Thanks for starting your Monday with WBMR. Coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, questions remain over how four children managed to survive 40 days in the jungle after their plane crashed. They're currently recovering at a hospital in Columbia. It's 719. 
Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org cars. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by The Huntington, presenting the first American production of The Lehman Trilogy, winner of the 2022 Tony Award for Best Play. This marvel of theatrical storytelling is an intimate saga about a family and a monumental expose of unbridled capitalism. Starts June 13th at the Huntington Theater, huntingtontheater.org. And members of the Massachusetts Energy Marketers Association, committed to reducing carbon emissions with clean, renewable bioheat fuel. MyBioHeat.com. Due to President Joe Biden's age, Vice President Kamala Harris is under a lot more scrutiny than number twos on the ticket usually are. Is she a liability or an asset to Biden's re-election campaign? She's the first black woman, the first woman, the first Asian American. She can speak to a huge swath of the Democratic Party in a very compelling way. That's On Point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. The city of Somerville is inviting the public to attend a raising of the Juneteenth flag this afternoon at City Hall. Juneteenth is next Monday, and it marks the freeing of enslaved black Americans during the Civil War. Today's ceremony to mark the holiday in Somerville begins at 530. Mostly cloudy today with a high near 82. Tonight cloudy and it falls to a low around 62. There's a good chance of showers and thunderstorms overnight. Tomorrow mostly cloudy and a high of 72 with a chance of scattered showers. Right now, it's 65 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from STARS with a new season of Outlander. In order to protect what they've built, Jamie and Claire have to navigate the perils of the Revolutionary War. Outlander premieres June 16th on STARS and the STARS app. From Fisher Investments, Fisher Investments' team of specialists tailor portfolios to each client's long-term goals. Learn more at FisherInvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. And from Dickinson College, awarding the Rose Walters Prize for Global Environmental Activism to Combat Climate Change and Inspire Future Leaders. Learn more at dickinson.edu rwp. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Leila Faldid. Parents are constantly being told they have to limit children's consumption of things like junk food or social media for their health. But for many moms and dads, this can feel impossible. And neuroscientists say they know why it's such a struggle. For our series, Living Better, NPR's Michaeline Ducleff finds out what's happening in a kid's brain that drives this overconsumption. Whether it's spending hours scrolling on social media or eating copious amounts of sugary junk food, These activities tap into ancient neural circuits and cause a surge in a molecule inside a child's brain called dopamine. And Noelle Samaha is a neuroscientist at the University of Montreal. She says these circuits and dopamine are critical to keeping your child alive. These mechanisms evolved in our brain to draw us to things that are essential to our survival, you know, water, safety, sex, food. In other words, there's something in the sugary foods and the flickering screens that releases dopamine and tricks the brain into thinking they're essential. This molecule, she says, has gotten a lot of attention recently, but there's a big misconception about it. In popular media, there's this idea that dopamine equates pleasure. 
that these bursts of dopamine make you love whatever you're doing. Journalists have even called dopamine the molecule of happiness. But Samaha says, There's actually little convincing data in science that that's what dopamine does. And there's in fact a lot of data to refute the idea that dopamine is mediating pleasure. Instead, research now shows that dopamine generates another emotion, desire. Dopamine makes you want things. Whatever is triggering a big spike in dopamine pulls your attention to it. Your brain tells you something important is happening. So you should stay here, stay close to this thing because it's important to you. That's what dopamine does. And here's the surprising part. Whatever dopamine makes you want, you might not actually like it, especially over time. In fact, studies show that people can end up not liking, even hating the activity they're doing. If you talk to people who spend a lot of time shopping online or going through social media, they don't necessarily feel good after doing it. There's a lot of evidence that it's quite the opposite. So let's look at what this means for kids. My daughter is seven, and she was getting in the habit of watching cartoons every night. And while her eyes fixate on the technicolor images, dopamine bursts in her brain, not once, but repeatedly. And that keeps her wanting to watch. Then I come in and say, time's up, time to go to bed, and take the screen away from her abruptly. But the dopamine doesn't go away immediately. The dopamine levels are still high, and what does dopamine do? Dopamine tells you that something important is happening and there's a need somewhere that you have to answer. In other words, I'm ripping this important thing away from my daughter that she may feel is critical to her survival. Semaha says this can be incredibly frustrating for a kid, even enraging. And so she fights me. It's not you versus your child. It is you versus a hijacked neural pathway. It is the dopamine you're fighting. And it's not a fair fight. That's Emily Churkin. She was a middle school teacher for over a decade and now is a screen consultant. She says this can be hard for even adults to handle. So she tells parents, wait as long as possible before bringing new devices, new apps, new ways of watching videos, even new types of junk food into your home. I talked to hundreds of parents and they, not one has ever said to me, I wish I gave my kid a phone earlier or I wish I'd given them social media access at a younger age. Never. And for the activities that kids are already entangled with, Dr. Anna Limke is a psychiatrist at Stanford University. She says parents can figure out if the activity or snacking is healthy and unlikely to become a problem. That's true when... The activities that we feel good doing it, and then afterwards we feel even better. That's really the key. That means we're getting a healthy source of dopamine. But the things that make you feel worse afterwards, those are concerning. Limke says parents should be very careful with those activities and foods. We need to limit quantity and frequency of use. So how on earth do parents do that? Limke says it's tough at first. Kids get cranky. But there are a few things you can do to make it easier. For starters, create microenvironments. Places in the home and times during the day where the child cannot see or access the device or food. For example, my family stopped bringing screens in the car. We removed them from all but one room in the house, and we started camping once a month. No screens. When we know we can't go on, the craving goes away. 
And for sugary foods, we enjoy them at parties or ice cream parlors. And if my daughter does want a treat at home, she bakes it. Finally, try a habit makeover. Instead of cutting out an activity, look for a version that's more purposeful. We're creatures of habit in a really fundamental way. So we cannot get rid of all of our habits. We can just seek to build habits that are a little bit, you know, healthier than other habits. That's Yevgenia Kotorovitsky. She's a neurobiologist at Northwestern University. She has two tween boys, and she encourages them to play this adventure video game that requires many cognitive skills. Advanced social and language skills. Somehow, you know, I don't feel the same way about them playing that game. I tried this strategy with my daughter. We switched the cartoons for a language learning game, and guess what happened? After two weeks, she lost interest in that program and the screen completely. Michaeline Duclef, NPR News. Support for NPR health coverage comes from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health, containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at alignprobiotics.com. And from Progressive Insurance with Snapshot, a personalized program that bases rates on safe driving habits at Progressive.com. Not available in California and North Carolina or from all agents. This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next, then coming up at 7.45 on WBUR's Morning Edition. Lynn native Alex Newell won a Tony for Best Featured Actor in a Musical last night. The awards show almost didn't happen because of the Hollywood writers' strike. It's 7.29. The WBUR app makes following the news all day easy. You can listen live, pause, and even rewind. That's the WBUR app in your app store today. WBUR supporters include Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts. Medicare Advantage plans start as low as $0 per month with new benefits like enhanced dental coverage. BlueCrossMA.com slash go. And Babson, top ranked in entrepreneurship by U.S. News & World Report. Babson's MBA prepares you to tackle global challenges. Babson.edu slash MBA. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Former President Donald Trump is scheduled to be arraigned in a Florida courtroom tomorrow. Trump is facing 37 federal counts stemming from his handling of classified documents after he left the White House. NPR's Windsor Johnston says many Republicans are voicing support for Trump following his indictment. House Republicans, many from the ultra-conservative Freedom Caucus, are pledging to use their power in Congress to discredit the case against Trump. Speaker Kevin McCarthy called the Justice Department's decision to charge the former president a brazen weaponization of power. A committee of the British Parliament is meeting today to finalize its report into former Prime Minister Boris Johnson and whether he lied about breaking the government's COVID-19 lockdown rules during the pandemic. As NPR's Lauren Freyer reports, Johnson resigned from Parliament after receiving a draft of the report. 
Johnson's resignation from Parliament triggers a special by-election for his suburban London seat, at a time when his ruling Conservatives are trailing in the polls. Two other Conservative lawmakers have also resigned in solidarity with Johnson. That leaves their party unexpectedly having to campaign to hold the same number of seats it's had since 2019. Johnson resigned as Britain's prime minister and leader of the Conservative Party last year. This is NPR News from Washington. Italy's longest-serving prime minister, Silvio Berlusconi, has died at a hospital in Milan. That's according to Italian media. Berlusconi was admitted on Friday for treatment of chronic leukemia. He was 86 years old. NATO's Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg is expected at the White House today for talks with President Biden. They are expected to discuss the war in Ukraine in addition to NATO leadership after Stoltenberg leaves the job in September. That's when his current term expires. The Broadway musical Kimberly Akimbo won multiple honors at last night's Tony Awards. Jeff London reports from New York. The big prize went to Kimberly Akimbo, a quirky musical about a girl with a disease which causes her to age rapidly. I like the way you see the world. I like your point. It took five Tony Awards. Five is the number of times Tom Stoppard has won the best play Tony. This time for Leopoldstadt, a semi-autobiographical play about Jewish life in Vienna from the turn of the last century to 1955. Parade, which also deals with anti-Semitism, won Best Musical Revival, and Top Dog Underdog won Best Play Revival. Alex Newell and J. Harrison G., two non-binary actors, won for their roles in Shucked and Some Like It Hot. For NPR News, I'm Jeff London in New York. I'm Dave Mattingly in Washington. This is WBUR in Boston. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Voters will head to the polls in Hull tomorrow to complete the town's municipal elections. Elections were disrupted last month when a fire blocked the road to the town's only polling place. A judge ordered Hull to reopen polls to make sure everyone who wanted to vote could. There will be a groundbreaking today for what's billed as an environmentally friendly heating and cooling system in Framingham. It's the first geothermal system being built by Eversource. The project uses underground heat to circulate hot and cold water through a network of pipes. The pilot program will connect about 40 buildings. Tonight, an awards screening at the Somerville Theater's Crystal Ballroom will celebrate the frenzied art of making short films in just two days. WBUR's Andrea Shea has more on the Boston 48-hour film project. Seventy-two teams raced against the clock to complete their short films on time. This is our 20th year, and some of our teams have been doing it since pretty much the very first year. Andrew Osborne has been overseeing the wild weekend event since 2019. Tonight, 17 finalists are up for awards. If you win the Boston 48, you compete with the best films from around the world. And then the winning group from there goes and screens at the Cannes Film Festival. That's the big, big prize. But Osborne says the event is really about the art and spirit of collaboration. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Andrea Shea. It's 734. 
We are funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software for technical computing and model-based design, accelerating the pace of discovery in engineering and science. MathWorks.com. The Red Sox beat the Yankees 3-2 to in 10 innings last night in the Bronx. The Sox will be back home tonight to play the Claude Rod Rockies. Highs in the low 80s today under mostly overcast skies. Tonight still cloudy and low 60s with a good chance of showers and thunderstorms overnight. Tomorrow, mostly cloudy again and highs in the low 70s with scattered showers possible. It's 65 degrees in Boston. Your WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Angie. Angie's List is now Angie, dedicated to helping homeowners get home projects done well. From everyday repairs to dream remodels, reviews, pricing, and booking are at Angie.com or on the Angie app. From Easy Cater, committed to helping companies find food for meetings and team lunches, with catering menus from restaurants nationwide, online ordering, and 24-7 live support. EasyCater.com. And from the Doris Duke Foundation, It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Leila Falden. We're going to talk now about an epic story of survival in Colombia. There, search parties had spent weeks trying to find four indigenous children, including a baby who survived a plane crash in the Amazon jungle. Finally, after 40 days, all four were found alive. Reporter John Otis joins us from Bogota via Skype. Good morning. Good morning. Wow, John. I mean, this is... Such an incredible story. 40 days and these children are found alive. How are people reacting to the news that these kids survived? It is just fantastic news. In fact, the Colombian government is calling this a miracle because it really seemed like there was going to be no way these kids were going to make it out of the the jungle after, after being there for so long. Their single engine charter plane went down way back on May 1st in a very dense rainforest in southern Colombia. It's an area full of jaguars and poisonous snakes and, wow. and fast-flowing rivers, as well as guerrilla fighters and the occasional landmines. So there was danger all over the place. In fact, the conditions were so tough that it took search parties two weeks just to find the wreckage of the aircraft. And at the crash site, they found the dead bodies of three adults, including the children's mother, but her four kids mm. who were ages 13, nine, and four, as well as an 11-month-old baby were missing. So the Colombian army teamed up with local indigenous groups who know the jungle better than the soldiers, and they began picking up clues. Uh, they quickly found footprints and a diaper and then a baby bottle. So, so they knew the kids were out there someplace. I mean, you're describing poison, jaguars, occasional landmines. How did these children survive? Well, uh, they managed to avoid some some of those problems. Uh, and the main issue was food. Uh, but these are Witoto indigenous children who who grew up in the jungle. They're accustomed to the rainforest. So at least some of the older kids knew what was edible and what may be poisonous. So they were able to forage for things like passion fruit. They ate seeds and roots. And since it was the rainy season, they were able to find some water. There was also a bit of food in the aircraft wreckage. And finally, uh, army helicopters tossed out food boxes, and some of those uh, found their way into the children's hands. Why did it take so long to find them? Well, the problem is they didn't stay put at the crash site. Uh, They may have been uh, spooked uh, from the accident and in a state of shock from finding their deceased mother. They may have wanted to just get away from that tragic place and try to walk out of the jungle on their own. Uh, And this made it much harder uh, for the search teams. 
Uh, all along, helicopters were broadcasting uh, messages uh, from the kid's grandmother uh, in the Witoto language and telling them to stay put and that help was on the way. But the noise of the choppers and the barking of the search dogs actually scared the children uh, who spent much of their time uh, actually hiding. Um, and at one point, uh, the indigenous members of the search party, they became so frustrated that, that they took ayahuasca, which is a psychedelic brew made from jungle plants, to see if that would provide them with some visions and point them in the right direction. Wow. So how were they finally rescued? The first to find them was a, a Belgian shepherd a search and rescue dog. The human search party finally caught up with the children late Friday afternoon, and here's what that moment sounded like. I'm Ali. So in this video, you can hear the search crew chanting in Witoto and giving thanks that they have found all four children. Uh, the kids were badly dehydrated and malnourished, but they are in stable condition in a hospital uh, here in Bogota, and doctors are expecting them to make a full recovery. Incredible. John, thanks for bringing us this really a miraculous story. Thanks for having me. In this country, we're following an effort to change child labor laws. There are provisions that allow children as young as 12 to work within the law on certain jobs. NPR's Andrea Shu has more. This year alone, stories have emerged of 13-year-olds cleaning saws in meatpacking plants, 10-year-olds working in the kitchen of a McDonald's. But this bill is not about them. It's about the estimated tens or even hundreds of thousands of children who are legally working in agriculture. The fact that children are still put in harm's way working in the fields is a legacy of a bygone era that needs to be rectified. That's Democratic Congressman Raul Ruiz of California, one of the sponsors of the bill known as the CARE Act. The Children's Act for Responsible Employment and Farm Safety. Under federal law, children have to be 14 to work just about anywhere, and their hours have limits. But there's a carve-out for agriculture that dates back decades. Children can be hired for farm work at age 12 for any number of hours, as long as they don't miss school. And while children are generally prohibited from doing hazardous work, again, there's an exception for agriculture. At 16, children can operate heavy machinery and work at any height on farms. The CARE Act would do away with these carve-outs. We're not asking for anything more or above. We're asking for parity. Margaret Worth of Human Rights Watch says current law creates absurd parallels, where children of the same ages don't receive the same protections from dangerous work. To operate a circular meat slicer at a deli, you'd have to be 18. But to use that same kind of circular saw on a farm, you could be 16. Now, many versions of this bill have been introduced over the years, only to die in Congress. But now that child labor violations in factories and slaughterhouses have grabbed headlines, Margaret Worth is hopeful this time will be different. I think it's just an issue of people not realizing that we still have these harmful carve-outs in law that allow this to legally be happening in our country. Prior iterations of this bill met with fierce opposition from farms. At a hearing last fall, Christy Boswell, who grew up on a farm and later served in President Trump's agriculture department, warned that traditions held by farming families would be threatened. My niece and nephews would not have been able to detassel corn at ages 12 and 13 despite their parents knowing they were mature enough to handle the job. 
Actually, the bill has some exemptions for family farms. And Margaret Worth says it's not about keeping the children of farm owners and their cousins from working and learning the family business. It's about protecting those who are the most vulnerable. These are Latinx children and their families who are working in the fields because they're living in extreme poverty. But here lies another complexity. Many families depend on the income their children bring in. Cutting off that source of income could be devastating. Worth is under no illusions that the CARE Act would end child labor overnight, but she says it would set a legal framework for tackling the issue. If a labor inspector goes to a farm today and finds a 12-year-old working a 14-hour shift in a tobacco field, there's no violation to report. There's really nothing that inspector can say. Because that work is completely legal, something this bill seeks to change. Andrea Shu, NPR News. This is NPR News. It's a Monday on WBUR. Coming up at 810, former President Donald Trump is painting the federal indictments against him as an attack on voters. We hear from a GOP strategist on how Republicans are receiving that message. Mostly cloudy and low 80s today. Tonight, low 60s with showers and thunderstorms possible. Tomorrow, low 70s and mostly cloudy. Right now, it's 65 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Vertex, committed to making a difference in biotech to create and deliver innovative therapies for people with serious diseases. Career opportunities at vrtx.com. The defense industry in Massachusetts supports more than 139,000 jobs. That's according to a new report from the industry group Senedia. It finds defense contracts generate more than $48 billion here. Per capita, that's about twice the national average. Bristol-Myers Squibb will soon start production at its cell therapy manufacturing facility in Devons. The Food and Drug Administration gave the company the go-ahead last week. The facility is expected to create 500 new cell therapy jobs. It's 744. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fidelity Investments. A dedicated advisor can help create a wealth plan for a full financial picture. More at fidelity.com wealth. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. From BritBox, with season two of The Tower starring Gemma Whalen. This and more police dramas, including Line of Duty and The Responder starring Martin Freeman. Streaming at BritBox.com NPR. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Good morning. Broadway honored its own last night, giving out the annual Tony Awards. This ceremony almost did not take place because of the Hollywood writers' strike. But the Writers Guild of America let the awards go ahead so long as the presenters worked on stage without a written script. So the stars gathered at the United Palace, one of those ornate old movie houses that's now a stage. Jeff London covers Broadway and is on the line. Good morning. Good morning. So how did this unscripted ceremony go? Well, I think it went pretty smoothly. The producers dealt with the issue up front. The show started with a shot of a script, and host Ariana DeBose opened it, and 
the pages were blank. Mm. Uh, so she turned and a bunch of dancers did a number without any words, which went from the theater's lobby through the aisles and onto the stage. Wow. And she made jokes about it in her presumably unscripted opening monologue. I am live and unscripted. You're welcome. So to everyone who And at various points, winners mentioned the writer's strike, like Miriam Silverman, who won Best Featured Actress in the play The Sign in Sidney Brewstein's Window. My parents raised me to believe in the power of labor and workers being compensated and treated fairly, and we stand with the WGA in solidarity. Thank you very much. Okay, so no script, but there were awards. Was there a big winner? Yes. Uh, the quirky small musical Kimberly Akimbo took home five awards, including the most important, Best Musical. It could help a show which has been doing decent business but not selling out. Uh, here's Victoria Clark, who plays the title role and won the Best Actress Tony Award. I like the way you see the world. I like your point of view. A little sly, a little strange, a little bit askew. I like the way you look at life. Here's another theme that I noticed. Two different shows that deal with anti-Semitism one. Yes, uh, Leopoldstadt. Tom Stoppard's semi-autobiographical play won four awards. It's set in Vienna over a half century and looks at a large assimilated Jewish family that's annihilated by the Nazis. And the musical Parade won Best Revival and Best Director. It's based on a real story about a Jewish man accused of murdering a teenage girl in Georgia in 1913. He was then lynched by a mob two years later. So tough material. But its writers won Tony Awards 25 years ago when it debuted. Were there any firsts last night? Yes. For the first time ever, two non-binary actors were nominated for Tonys, and they both won. J. Harrison G. of the musical Some Like It Hot took Best Actor, and Alex Newell won Best Featured Actor in the musical Shucked. They play a female character. Here's a bit of Newell's acceptance speech. Thank you for seeing me, Broadway. I should not be up here as a queer, non-binary, fat, black, little baby from Massachusetts. Nevertheless, they are up there. So was it a good year for the Tonys? I think it was something of a comeback for an industry that's really been hurting because of the pandemic. It's not out of the woods yet. Audiences are returning, but not in pre-pandemic numbers. So the ceremony was a good way for people across the country to sample some of the shows they're currently playing on Broadway. That's Jeff London. Thanks so much. Thank you. This is NPR News. You're with WBUR. Coming up at 8.20, we follow one of the teams competing in the annual Boston 48-hour film project. The winning productions will be screened tonight at the Somerville Theater's Crystal Ballroom. It's 7.49. I'm Steve Inskeep. Around the world... Our co-host Leila Fadel has been reporting from Ukraine. In your community... Workers are unionizing in fields where they haven't always had a big presence. And farther afield... Think really far, like out of this world. And liftoff of Artemis 1. Morning Edition from NPR News takes you wherever the story is. Listen every weekday. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners.
and by Fidelity Investments, reminding you it's never too early to start saving for your child's future. Learn more about a tax-advantaged 529 college savings account and how you can use the money to pay for qualified expenses at fidelity.com slash ufund. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSE SIPC. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Monday morning. The former Prime Minister of Italy, Silvio Berlusconi, has died at the age of 86. Interstate 95 in Philadelphia could be closed for months after a truck fire caused a bridge collapse. In Montana, a group of young people is suing the state for failing to address climate change. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR on the WBUR mobile app and at WBUR.org. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Ocean State Job Lot, partnering with customers to help animal welfare organizations throughout the Northeast. OceanStateJobLot.com. Low 80s and mostly cloudy today. It's 66 degrees in Boston. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Leila Faldil. Japan's government recently announced plans to address what it sees as a national crisis. Less than 800,000 babies were born in the country last year, the lowest number on record. But the plans are being met with skepticism, partly because the government has been trying to fix the problem unsuccessfully for three decades. NPR's Anthony Kuhn has this report from one Japanese city that is doing better than most. To anyone concerned about the declining population, this childcare center in western Japan's Akashi City offers some encouraging noises. The center includes clean and bright playrooms and libraries. Haruka Okamoto, 30, brings her daughter here because it's free and she can play with other kids. She says she was confident about having a child in Akashi and is considering having more. We get generous support for childcare and other things, which even makes my friends jealous, so I'm not worried. We are building a house in Akashi. It is a town which makes me think I want to live here forever. Kids in Akashi get free medical care up to age 18. Families with two or more kids get free nursery school. Babies under age one get free diapers delivered to their homes by midwives, all regardless of income. Resident Arisa Chisaka says it's not just saving money on diapers that helps, it's also talking to the midwife. They also focus on mental care. Besides delivering diapers, they say things like, are you too tired? Or, please get more support from your husband. The childcare policies have attracted young families to move to Akashi from other cities. Akashi's population has grown for 10 years in a row to over 300,000. As of 2021, women here had an average of 1.65 kids compared to 1.3 children nationwide. Many Akashi residents credit the city's success to Fusaho Izumi, the city's mayor, from 2011 until April. In an interview in Tokyo, Izumi explains how he helped raise the city's birth rate. I did not believe that population growth was the goal. It was just the result of making a city an easy place to live. Izumi notes that he doubled the city's childcare spending not by increasing taxes, but by cutting spending on public works. He admits, though, that this offended some bureaucrats and businessmen. Last year, he pledged to quit politics and apologized for threatening two assembly members. He says his remarks were taken out of context. He insists Akashi's success can be replicated nationwide. 
but he doesn't think that Prime Minister Fumio Kishida's plan will do the trick. Unfortunately, I must say that the plan is insufficient and too slow. Even if it is fully realized, it will have almost no effect. Kishida has pledged to double Japan's spending on childcare by the early 2030s. He's promised bigger subsidies for families with kids, more spending on education, and medical care for children with disabilities. He's not said exactly where the money will come from to pay for all this. Kishida highlighted the urgency of the issue in a June 1st speech. The period until the early 2030s, when the population of young people is expected to decline sharply, is the last chance to reverse the declining birth rate trend. But Masahiro Yamada, a sociologist at Tokyo's Chuo University, says Japanese government's track record makes it hard to be optimistic. He's not confident that Japan has the stomach for the drastic reforms needed to increase its birth rate. I'm worried that Japanese people would prefer to accept a declining birth rate and everyone gradually equally getting poorer, rather than accepting a big change which causes some people to lose out. Te Amano leads a civic group that lobbies the government on childcare policies. She says another problem is that Japanese don't all agree on the importance of the birth rate issue. In the current generation, only 25% of households have children. That means the other 75% don't have children. Therefore, for lots of people, this is someone else's problem. Some parents in Akashi express similar feelings. They're not just looking for welfare benefits, but for social acceptance. Hiromi Kumamoto explains while taking care of her son. I want the government to create an atmosphere in which people, like those in Akashi who are raising children, would be welcomed everywhere in the country. Her implication, though, is that Japan still has a long way to go before that's true. Anthony Kuhn, NPR News, Akashi City, Japan. Tim Agnello is a man with a hobby, a hobby that's not for everyone. I was catching snakes probably when I was three years old, but it was when I was 11 years old that I caught my first rattlesnake, and man, I was hooked. That's the hobby, catching rattlesnakes. He can't forget the feeling of grabbing his first. Your nerves just kind of woo and your stomach drops, and It's kind of scary at first, but it's super exciting. Yeah, my nerves would also just kind of woo. That first time, he was with a friend who did not share his excitement. I tell my friend, hey, there's a rattlesnake under this board. And he starts freaking out, and he's running around like a crazy person. But I was really thrilled by it and was trying to catch it and finally got it into a coffee can. Agnello has been grabbing rattlesnakes ever since. He works as a pastor in Las Vegas and was looking to do some kind of community service when he heard an announcement on the news. Hey, rattlesnake season is coming. Everybody be careful. And I thought, well, I could be of service. Soon, Agnello was passing out flyers, talking with animal control and posting on social media, offering to come to people's homes and remove snakes. You know, if I can come in and encourage people and get their snakes... I thought that would be a good way for me to use uh, my own personal skill set to help our community. And he does it for free. Most people don't want to do it. And for those who do do it, they charge an arm and a leg, which I don't think is right. He takes the risk of getting bitten in an arm or a leg, but says he's doing three to four house calls a day. We don't kill the snake. 
So it's kind of a rescue for them. I think it's important to keep them alive and to keep them part of the ecosystem. Agnello finds places in the desert with enough food, water, and shade, and then releases the rattlesnakes back into the wild. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Falden. And I'm Steve Inskeep. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink Software, powering the Engineering Design Workshop exhibit at the Museum of Science, mathworks.com slash MOS. And Bass, Barry, and Sims Healthcare Law Practice, advising academic medical centers and healthcare providers on complex legal matters nationwide. More at bassberry.com. Reporter Deborah Becker, and this is 90.9 WBUR FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Polarizing and controversial former Italian Prime Minister Silvio Berlusconi has reportedly died at age 86. It's Monday, June 12th. This is WB Warren's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, how former President Donald Trump's supporters are reacting to his portrayal of the federal indictments against him as an attack on voters. In the end, they're not coming after me, they're coming after you, and I'm just standing in their way. And this hour, Scotland's former First Minister, Nicola Sturgeon, was arrested and then released yesterday in connection with a campaign finance investigation. Plus, from idea to screen in two days, Boston's 48-hour film project isn't just a competition. It has this amazingly great effect on getting people to work together, use their minds, problem solve, because, you know, when you've only got 48 hours, what do you do? you got to figure out how to make it work. Mostly cloud and around 80 today. It's 8.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. Former President Donald Trump is expected to appear in court tomorrow in Miami, where he'll be arraigned on charges of obstructing justice and unlawful retention of defense information. NPR's Domenica Montanaro reports Trump spent the weekend defending himself. The indictment details 37 counts against the former president and included photos of boxes of secret materials on a truck, on a stage, and in a bathroom at his Florida home. But in a speech before the Georgia Republican Party, Trump called the charges ridiculous and baseless. Few of his rivals running against him for the presidential nomination have taken him to task over the allegations. Most instead have lashed out against the Justice Department. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis accused the DOJ of playing politics, as did even Trump's former vice president, Mike Pence, who said that Trump put his life in danger during the riot at the Capitol on January 6th. Domenico Montanaro, NPR News, Washington. A pair of House Democrats are introducing a bill today that would raise the minimum age for children working in agriculture. 
As NPR's Andrea Shu reports, it's a renewed push on an old issue. Under federal law, children must be 14 to work in just about any job. But one big exception is agriculture, where a decades-old carve-out means children as young as 12 can be hired to work on farms. The bill would do away with the carve-out. Congressman Raul Ruiz of California, one of its sponsors, says the bill would go a long way to protect children of immigrant farm workers. We cannot accept substandards for one community because they're poor as opposed to other communities. Prior versions of this bill met with strong opposition from farmers and their lobby, who've warned that farming traditions would be threatened. The bill's sponsors say there are ample exemptions for family farms. Andrea Shu, NPR News. President Biden welcomes the outgoing head of NATO to the White House today. Biden and Jens Stoltenberg will discuss Russia's war in Ukraine. NATO members will gather next month in Lithuania to select a new secretary general to succeed Stoltenberg. Officials in Ukraine say they've started their counteroffensive to eject Russian forces. So far, Ukraine has recaptured four small Ukrainian villages. Troops will push southeast in an effort to divide Russian forces. Former Italian Prime Minister Silvio Berlusconi has died. NPR's Rob Schmitz says he was a billionaire businessman who created his country's largest media company before transforming the political landscape. Berlusconi, leader of the Forza Italia political party and founder of the media set Empire, was 86 years old and had been suffering from leukemia. He became Italy's biggest media mogul before turning to politics and serving three terms as the country's prime minister. He was a divisive figure. His fans admired his charisma and decisiveness, and his critics derided him as a populist who wielded political power as a means to enrich himself and his businesses. NPR's Rob Schmitz reporting. This is NPR. Several policemen and their assailants have been killed in attacks on two police stations in Vietnam's Central Highlands. NPR's Michael Sullivan reports from Chiang Rai, Thailand. State-run media is reporting the armed attackers targeted two police stations in Vietnam's Central Highlands. Violence against security forces is rare in the tightly controlled one-party communist state. But frustration with the central government runs high in the Central Highlands in particular, where land rights and calls for greater autonomy are contentious issues. In an area home to a number of ethnic minorities, collectively known as Montagnards, many of whom sided with the U.S. during the war. A statement from the Ministry of Public Security did not specify the number of police or attackers killed, but did say several attackers are in custody. Michael Sullivan, NPR News, Chiang Rai. Pennsylvania Governor Josh Shapiro says he will issue a disaster declaration later today. It's over a fiery collapse of a freeway underpass in Philadelphia yesterday. A fuel truck burned underneath, buckling the northbound lane of Interstate 95, a major north-south freeway. The southbound overpass is still standing, but it's compromised. A group of young people is suing the state of Montana over climate issues. They allege the state has violated their right to a healthy environment by promoting fossil fuel policies. They say the policies contribute to climate change. Similar lawsuits have been lodged in over a dozen states, but the case in Montana is the first to proceed to trial. I'm Corva Coleman, NPR News. This is WBUR in Boston. I'm Rupa Shanoi. The Brockton man accused of shooting a Boston police officer is due in court today. The officer is still recovering from the Friday night shooting in Roxbury. Their name has not been released. More now from WBUR's Amy Sokolow. 
Police say the officers saw 23-year-old John Lazare robbing a pizza delivery person at gunpoint in Roxbury and intervened. Police say Lazare fired at the officer. Other officers responded and chased the suspect without firing a shot. Boston Police Commissioner Michael Cox is praising his officers. So often you hear, you know, throughout the country around police and our over-response or over-aggressive behavior. Our officers are different. Our officers are professional. We take pride in that. According to police, the two officers were injured during the pursuit and Lazare was hurt after he jumped off a roof. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Amy Sokolow. Starting today, the Haymarket station on the green and orange lines of the T is closed. The closure will help crews demolishing the government center garage above the station. There will be no green line service between government center and north station. Orange line trains will go through Haymarket station but won't stop there. The station should reopen in two weeks. A new study shows hormone therapy decreases the risk of suicide for transgender youth by nearly 15 percent. Nirvani Williams reports a UMass researcher was among the co-authors. Duke Heon says his findings that strongly affirm the benefits of gender-affirming care for transgender people are not necessarily new. Heon says several medical studies and surveys show that hormone therapy reduces gender dysphoria, the distress related to conflict between an individual's self-identified gender and their assigned sex at birth. The scientific evidence is already out there um, showing that gender affirming care is effective and it's recommended. Whether that evidence is being used for policymaking is a different question. MassHealth currently covers a number of gender-affirming treatments, but at least 17 states including Florida and Texas, have enacted laws restricting gender-affirming care. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Nirvani Williams. It's 8.07. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Nuance. Discover how the Nuance Dragon Ambient Experience, or DAX, can help physicians improve efficiency so they may be more effective with their patients. Learn more at nuance.com WBUR. The Red Sox topped the Yankees 3-2 in 10 innings last night in New York. Boston finished its six-game road trip with a 3-3 record. The Sox returned to Fenway tonight to play the Colorado Rockies. In your forecast, cloudy and near 80 today. Showers and maybe even a thunderstorm overnight. Temperatures will be in the 60s. Cloudy with another chance for showers tomorrow in the 70s. Right now it's 66 degrees in Boston. Thanks for starting your day with WBUR. WBUR supporters include stars with a new season of Outlander. In order to protect what they've built, Jamie and Claire have to navigate the perils of the Revolutionary War. Outlander premieres June 16th on Stars and the Stars app. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Republican responses to former President Trump's indictment fall several ways. Trump is denouncing it and saying he's innocent, although photographs show many cartons of documents in his home. The indictment says many contained sensitive military secrets. Several Republican presidential candidates are attacking the federal Justice Department, even though they want to replace Trump as the party leader. Some candidates say the indictment is serious, as do some former members of the Trump administration. Former Attorney General William Barr told Fox the indictment is strong. And we have reached John Bolton, the president's one-time national security advisor. Ambassador, welcome back. Glad to be with you. Uh, You've handled a lot of classified documents in your time. What do you see in this indictment? I see big trouble for Donald Trump. I I think this is a a potentially catastrophic turn of events for him. It certainly should be. 
because if proven in trial, and of course that uh, that is the government's burden, but but if proven at trial, uh, it should put Trump in jail for a long time. You know, uh, there, there's a there's a thousands, tens of thousands of people in the federal government who have security classifications. And when they deviate even the slightest amount and it's found out, they face severe penalties if they're service members, they're discharged from the service. We have to hold everybody accountable uh, equally. And that does not exclude the president. Uh, So I think this is a real issue that's going to have profound impact on our national security if we don't take it seriously. We should emphasize we've seen the photographs and the former president himself has not denied having the documents. So the question really, if any, is whether he, as a former president, had a right to them. Of the various arguments that Trump has advanced, can you imagine any that would work in which a former president has some special latitude here? Well, if Trump had followed standard procedures, if anybody could have trusted him with the documents, uh, if he wanted to write a book about his time as president, there were procedures that could have been set up. He disregarded all of those, uh, which is how the National Archives eventually took this case to the Justice Department. But but it's the obstruction, it's the refusal to give back the documents uh, when they were demanded by subpoena and uh, and and through extensive discussions about what was required, that that's what tips this over the edge beyond any doubt. And I think anybody who tries to say that somehow this isn't serious, this is a storage issue, uh, are probably people who have never handled a classified document in their lives, don't understand what's at stake here, and, and it really is a national security issue. And Trump has displayed utter disdain. Uh, for these constraints. He did so, I saw it over and over again when he was president. The conduct that's alleged by the indictment is entirely believable to me. Again, the government has to prove it, and I hope they do it soon. I think one real issue here is how quickly this goes to trial. You know, Donald Trump says he's completely innocent. Well, if he's completely innocent, he should want this stain on his reputation removed as soon as possible. An innocent person would say, I want a trial uh, in a couple of months. Let's see what Donald Trump does. And, of course, if it goes beyond a couple of months, we're in the presidential primary season. Why, given what you've said, Ambassador, why do you think that Ron DeSantis, one of Trump's rivals for the nomination, is attacking the Justice Department over this indictment? Well, I I think it's a mistake. I think, actually, DeSantis the other day made a very important point, uh, which was when he was in the uh, Navy Judge Advocate General's Corps handling uh, classified information. If he had done a, a portion of what Trump is alleged to have done, he would have been court-martialed. That's the standard to make. And I think for Republicans, uh, look, uh, take it for granted that there's a double standard. Take it for granted. Democrats don't prosecute Democrats. Believe all that, that Hillary should have been prosecuted, Joe Biden should be prosecuted, and they weren't, and that's an injustice. Accept that for the sake of argument. And then ask these candidates the question, Does that mean you give Donald Trump a free pass? Is your answer to the double standard problem to have no standard at all? You know, Republicans used to believe that if you didn't prosecute criminals, you'd have more crime. And I think that insight was right then and it's right now. The way you correct the double standard is to take the politics out of the decision making. And if you do that, Donald Trump should be at trial as soon as possible. Can the Republican Party be the party of law and order if its leader is a person who's under indictment? Well, that's one reason why he should withdraw from the race right now. That's not what he's going to do. He will try and delay this trial past the election, hoping that he'll win and can then pardon himself. 
but a really innocent man would insist on trial at the earliest possible date. Ambassador John Bolton, always a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you. Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky has given just a little information about his country's military offensive. Russian defenders are also talking, so we have an early assessment of the Ukrainian move. For months now, Ukraine has gathered troops and supplies while promoting the idea that they can push back Russian invaders. So what are they doing? NPR's Greg Myrie has been gathering information from Ukraine's capital, Kyiv. Hey there, Greg. Good morning, Steve. Okay, starting with what the Ukrainians are saying or not saying, what do you hear? Yeah, Steve, for a war that's been so public and so well documented, it's it's pretty strange to see this pivotal event take place with limited visibility. Now, President Zelensky did come out and acknowledge the offensive had been launched. He did this at a press conference Saturday with Canada's visiting Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. But Zelensky really didn't offer details. He only said, uh, quote, I'm, I'm in daily contact with our commanders. Everyone is positive, so pass it on to Putin. And, of course, a reference to Russian leader Vladimir Putin. Sure. What we can decipher is that Ukraine is attacking in three specific areas or lanes in the east and southeast. And in the the middle lane, if you will, Ukraine says it's liberated four small villages. And the best evidence we have is Ukrainian soldiers posting videos raising the blue and yellow flag there. What do those data points and claims tell you about the broader offensive? Well, to be sure, this is the very first salvo of what's expected to be the biggest battle of the war, one likely to play out for much of this summer, if, if not beyond. And it's shaping up uh, the way many predicted. Uh, looks like Ukraine wants to drive to the southeast coast. This would cut the Russian forces in half, one group to the east, one to the south, and, and leave the Russians much more vulnerable. Ukraine thinks they can do this because they have brigades that have been freshly trained in Europe, and they're going into battle with these newly acquired NATO weapons, Bradley fighting vehicles from the U.S., Leopard tanks from Germany, missiles from Britain, and an assortment of other upgraded weapons. Well, how do Russians talk about this Ukrainian offensive? Well, Putin says the offensive is already failing, though the consensus among military analysts is it's, it's just way too early to be making any judgments. However, the Russians did expect the Ukrainians to attack in the, in the southeast, and they've been uh, digging in with minefields, extensive trench networks for their troops, concrete barriers in the places Ukraine is likely to advance. Mm. Russia's defense ministry put out a photo showing about a, a dozen of these new Ukrainian vehicles, these Western tanks and armored troop carriers that were clustered together after they'd been damaged and then abandoned by the Ukrainians. So this is just one snapshot. But it shows Ukraine will have a a tough time surprising the Russians. Um, And a lot of these battles will be fought on flat farmland where the attacking forces will be very much exposed. Analysts, at least some of them, speculated that Russia may have destroyed a dam uh, the other day, partly to make it more difficult for Ukraine to advance in some areas. What is the situation now in the areas that were flooded? Yeah, the water is receding around the southern city of Kherson, uh, but the damage is extensive and the recovery will be long. Now, the two countries are blaming each other without proof, but the the circumstantial evidence does point towards Russia. And Ukraine says Russia is using this flooded areas to, to move troops out of the south eastward where they can reinforce the Russian troops that are defending against the main part of Ukraine's offensive. Ah, they feel that the flood, supposedly feel that the flood is itself a defensive wall, which makes it easier to move troops elsewhere. Greg, thanks so much. Sure thing, Steve. That's NPR's Greg Myrie. 
We're approaching the height of the summer travel season. Millions of people attend weddings, as I did last weekend, or see their families, or head on vacation. And some who rest their heads on a strange pillow this summer will find they are not alone. I recently was at a bachelorette party with one of my friends in Colorado and got absolutely wrecked by bedbugs in the Airbnb. Sarah Lupker made a social media video of her experience. Her bug bites have now healed and the swelling is gone, but the experience has stayed with her. It is lastingly psychologically horrific. Like in the night, anytime I feel itchy at all, I wake up. And that cringy feeling isn't uncommon. There's so much fear associated with bedbug encounters. Deanie Miller is an entomology professor at Virginia Tech who originally studied cockroaches and then termites. But very shortly thereafter, bedbugs just took over the world. Miller says if you're worried about bedbugs when traveling, you can peel back the sheets and covers. Since the bedbugs feed on blood, they have to poop a lot. And they leave these little tiny black spots all over the place. Now, if you forget to check, Miller says you're probably okay. She says the vast majority of bedbugs are in apartments. Getting rid of every last bedbug can be very expensive and tedious. And therefore, the bedbug populations can exist for a long time in people's homes and apartments. Now, when Miller is crawling around bedbug-infested homes for her job, she wears smooth pants and brings an extra sticky lint roller. Really, in my experience, you know, I've been working on bedbugs for 17 years. I've never once brought them home, except on purpose from the lab, because I was feeding them on myself. Excuse me? Yeah, if we're doing research studies, we need to have fed bedbugs. Myself and my other lab members often take the jar, then we turn it upside down on our arms so the bedbugs come down and start feeding on us. Better her than me. This conversation is all making me itchy. For the rest of us, remember the old rhyme, nighty-night, sleep tight, don't let the bedbugs bite. This is NPR News. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Thanks for starting your week with WBUR. Coming up in 20 minutes on Morning Edition, former First Minister Nicola Sturgeon, the most powerful Scottish leader of the last decade, was arrested and questioned yesterday as part of an investigation into the finances of the Scottish National Party. It's 820. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.com. The Huntington, presenting the Lehman Trilogy, winner of the 2022 Tony Award for Best Play, starts tomorrow at the Huntington Theater, huntingtontheater.org. And Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts, Medicare Advantage plans start as low as $0 per month with new benefits like enhanced dental coverage, bluecrossma.com. Hey, this is Steve Inskeep with the Morning Edition. Mary Louise Kelly from All Things Considered. And I'm Lisa Mullins at WBUR. You know, my favorite car ever 
was my parents' Chevrolet Impala. My favorite all-time car was a little red Mini. My parents' red VW Bug painted white to make it look bigger. I don't know where that car is today, but I do know that an old car can be really valuable. Favorite or not, your current car can be turned into all things considered. It can be turned into Morning Edition. Go to WBUR.org. Mostly cloudy today with a high near 82 right now at 67 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Charles Schwab with a variety of financial planning options from online tools to meeting with a financial consultant. Schwab works to make it easy to plan for tomorrow today. More at schwab.com plan. From Keeper, a password manager designed to keep passwords secure and protect against cyber attacks. Websites and app logins are accessible across devices and passwords are shareable. More at KeeperSecurity.com. From Paycom, an HR and payroll tool designed to prevent lost hours during the week to allow employees to maximize their time and productivity. Learn more at Paycom.com radio. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. It can take a long time to make a short film, but the annual Boston 48-hour film project challenges teams to complete the process in two days. An award screening tonight at the Somerville Theater's Crystal Ballroom will celebrate this year's productions. WBUR's Andrea Shea followed one group's frenzied race to finish its first-ever movie in 48 hours. This cinematic throwdown, now in its 20th year, starts at 5.45 p.m. on a Friday in May. 72 teams from around New England zoom in to the kickoff meeting, not even knowing what type of movie they'll attempt to make. Then Boston 48-Hour Film Project producer Andrew Osborne asks each group to randomly draw genres. The participants' reactions to their assignments are mixed. Bye espionage. Oh, yeah. Vacation holiday film. God damn it. (laughs) Road movie. All right. Thank you. Oh, martial arts. Martial arts. Cool. Musical. Aren't you glad? (laughs) From professionals to newbies, people sign up to stretch their creative wings, network, or learn something new. If they finish, they'll bask in the glow of their films on the big screen. Judges choose one to compete with 48-hour shorts from more than 100 cities around the world. That winner shows at the Cannes Film Festival. But Osborne says that's not the project's point. It has this amazingly great effect on getting people to work together, use their minds, problem solve, because, you know, when you've only got 48 hours, what do you do? you got to figure out how to make it work. And they'll need to do that in four to seven minute films that must contain a few crucial elements, including a tattoo artist character named Alexander or Alexandra Green and a pizza box. All right. It is seven o'clock. Get out there. Get filming. Be safe. Um, yeah, Maddie, hold the pizza box. After brainstorming script ideas Friday night, team Women Artists in Action gathered equipment and props to start shooting early Saturday morning. We rolling, everyone? Julia Curiali co-founded the Somerville-based collective. 
We're a group that brings together um, women non-binary artists to gather and learn new types of mediums um, and just have a place to network and collaborate with other artists. Eight of 13 team members are on location at a quirky Lincoln landmark known as Ponyhenge. It's a whimsical and surreal-looking installation of donated toy hobby horses. We were saying, you know, how do we get access to horses to film this Western film? We said, oh, but there's Ponyhenge. The day's big blue sky and hot mid-afternoon sun suits their social commentary western, Outlaw Inc. Wielding cameras and mics, the crew of mostly beginners hovers around two actors in cowboy hats. I want to get it tight on her face. You want me to move? Yes. Yeah. A lot of our group has never been on set before. We have a couple people interested in learning cameras, so they're you know watching our camera operators as they're adjusting settings, asking questions to our editor about how the process is going to go. Oh, wait. Do you need a close-up break? Well, yeah, they are mic'd. Yeah. Sound person okay. Annie Laurie Madonis is the sole industry pro here, and she's wary of the time. The sun's going down at like 7, so we still have a few hours left. I would say you know we can get this wrapped within the next couple hours, and then we'll go to our, our next location. At dusk, they head to an artist studio in Lowell that's doubling as a tattoo parlor. Curiali and the team agreed to record some updates overnight and into Sunday. All right, so we're on our snack break. And it's almost 10 p.m. The problem we're running into right now is, like, the lighting is going to change so much more in the morning. And that's not something we really, like, thought of, I guess, ahead of time. Today is Sunday. We have two and a half hours left. No, it's Sunday. And... Kayla's in the process of still editing. We have the composer's tracks, which is very exciting. A few of us are pretty tired, we're, we're struggling, but we're here. The group's editor cranked for hours on Sunday, trying to meet the 7.30 p.m. deadline. 48-hour film project producer Andrew Osborne waits on Zoom as the uploaded films roll in. 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. It's 7.30. Congratulations for participating in the Boston 48-hour film project. We survived. It was quite the experience, to say the least. Julia Curiali is relieved to report Team Women Artists in Action got their film in on time. Brianna Martins, who's a painter, is proud of the collective's first foray into filmmaking. We were sitting there watching it, and I was like, oh, my God, we made that? It's, like, really crisp, and it doesn't look like the terrible, like, B-horror movies I would make my friends in high school. It looks like a movie. Allie, is that you? Get me out of here. The team got to see their little movie on the big screen at the Somerville Theater. And while it's not up for a 48-hour film project award tonight, they had a blast and say they'll definitely sign up again next year. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Andrea Shea. The 48-hour film project's Best of Awards screening is tonight at the Somerville Theater's Crystal Ballroom in Davis Square. Today's top stories are next and coming up in about 15 minutes on Morning Edition, a just-released unconventional album by Ghanaian-American singer Amare is already being called one of the best pop albums of the year. It's 829. 
funded by you, our listeners, and by Fort Point Arts Community, honoring artists who banded together more than 40 years ago to buy an old warehouse and form the first artist co-op building in Massachusetts. See art commemorating the co-op at 249 A Street on view now at Atlantic Wharf Gallery, fortpointarts.org. And the law firm of Nutter, McLennan & Fish, counsel to leading companies and institutions for more than a century. Client-focused, collaborative, this is Nutter, online at nutter.com. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. The war in Ukraine is expected to be a major focus today when President Biden meets with NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg at the White House. Ukraine's military says it's retaken four villages in its counteroffensive against Russian troops. Officials in Kyiv say three of the villages were taken yesterday in the Donetsk region. NPR's Greg Myrie reports. This is the very first salvo of what's expected to be the biggest battle of the war, one likely to play out for much of this summer, if, if not beyond. And it's shaping up uh, the way many predicted. Uh, looks like Ukraine wants to drive to the southeast coast. This would cut the Russian forces in half, one group to the east, one to the south, and, and leave the Russians much more vulnerable. Russia insists its forces are holding their ground in the south and east of Ukraine. A driver of a bus in Australia is facing charges after a deadly rollover accident. Ten people were killed, more than two dozen injured. That bus was transporting wedding guests in Australia's wine region last night when it flipped over in foggy conditions. Karen Webb is the police commissioner in New South Wales. The cause may not be known for some time. It will require scientific examination, and that takes time. The driver is expected to appear in court tomorrow. This is NPR News. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. The smoke from Canadian wildfires that blanketed much of New England did more than block the sun and make the air unhealthy to breathe. WBUR's Miriam Wasser reports it also reduced solar power production and made it harder to forecast electricity demand in the region. Every day, ISO New England, the regional grid operator, works to predict power demand and make sure we have the supply to meet it. Its experts rely on sophisticated computer models to do this, but those models aren't built to take wildfire smoke into account. Matt Cakley is a spokesperson for ISO New England. The challenge with something like this is that there's just simply not the historical data that you would have to look back on. As climate change continues to cause more extreme and unpredictable weather, many environmentalists say we need to do two things stop burning the fossil fuels that make the problem worse, and invest in a more modern and flexible electrical grid to improve resiliency. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Miriam Wasser. You've heard about people getting into bidding wars while buying a house. Now, apartment bidding wars are becoming more commonplace in greater Boston. That's because the number of available apartments is reaching historic lows. Renters compete by offering hundreds more in monthly rents. Real estate analysts tell the Boston Globe more than 5 percent of area rentals have gone above the asking price. Schools in Arlington are opening late today because of a bear. Public school officials say there was a bear sighting this morning. They're working with environmental police to locate the animal. Classes will start in the next hour or so. An actor from Lynn made history last night. Alex Newell became the first non-binary performer to win the Tony Award for Best Featured Actor in a Broadway Musical. 
Thank you for seeing me, Broadway. I should not be up here as a queer, non-binary, fat, black, little baby from Massachusetts. Newell won for their role in the musical comedy Shucked. They graduated from Bishop Fenwick High School. Also last night, South Boston native and playwright David Lindsay Abair shared the Tony for Best Musical. He won for his show, Kimberly Akimbo. It's 8.33. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Babson, top-ranked in entrepreneurship by U.S. News & World Report. Babson's MBA prepares you to tackle global challenges. Babson.edu slash MBA. The Red Sox beat the Yankees 3-2 to in 10 innings last night in the Bronx. Boston took two of the three games from New York this weekend. The Sox will be back home tonight to play the Colorado Rockies. Highs in the low 80s today under mostly overcast skies. Tonight still cloudy and low 60s with a good chance of showers and thunderstorms overnight. Tomorrow mostly cloudy again and highs in the low 70s with scattered showers possible. It's 67 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed, a hiring platform designed to streamline how businesses can attract, interview, and hire candidates. More at Indeed.com NPR. From Zoom, Zoom One is designed for AI-powered collaboration across phone, video, messaging, whiteboards, and work apps, keeping global teams connected. One platform to connect, Zoom One. And from listeners like you, who donate to this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Leila Faldin. Nicola Sturgeon, the former leader of Scotland, was arrested over the weekend. She says the experience was, quote, deeply distressing. Scotland is part of the UK, but has its own legislature. Until a few months ago, Sturgeon was its leader as the head of a party that favored full independence. But her party is under investigation for what it did with pro-independence campaign donations. Reporter Villa Marks is following all this. Hey there. Hey, Steve. How did the arrest work? Well, in terms of the actual arrest, we know that she agreed ahead of time with Scottish police to be interviewed and was then arrested and questioned after she arrived for that interview. It's part of this two-year investigation to the finances of the Scottish National Party focused on almost a million dollars worth of donations by party activists that had been essentially earmarked for future pro-independence campaigning. And there are questions about what exactly happened to that money. Three people had been signing off on the party's accounts. The former CEO who happens to be Sturgeon's husband, who stepped down from that role before his own arrest earlier this year. The party's treasurer, who was also arrested, then released earlier this year before resigning from that post. And now Sturgeon herself, who, let's not forget, has dominated Scottish politics for the best part of a decade with some eight years as the country's first minister. I think I understand this a little better. She said she was stunned by the arrest, and you're telling me that she did voluntarily go to the police station but may not have expected to be arrested while she was there for an interview. Is that right? Absolutely right, yeah. Okay, so what does this arrest, particularly on these suspicions, mean for independence efforts in Scotland? Well, you know, the party's already faced a huge amount of pressure, both from supporters and political opponents, even before this happened. Sturgeon's decision to step down as leader earlier this year sparked a a leadership contest that was pretty divisive. The ongoing investigations completely overshadowed her successor, Hamza Youssef's efforts to reunify the party. And in in fact, there are now members of the SNP itself demanding that Sturgeon be suspended from the party. Hmm. She's still a sitting member of the Scottish Parliament, insisted that her release, she'd return to work soon after that. 
Part of the problem underlying all this is the challenging financial position for the party. The funds at question in this inquiry were for any future pro-independence referendum. The widely held expectation had been the party would continue pushing for this, even though legal avenues to make that happen have been pretty much exhausted. But these events around the party's top leaders or former top leaders may well make it very hard for the SNP to raise funds from supporters in the future. OK, bring us up to date on another uh, UK leader. Sturgeon, you said, is still in the Scottish Parliament. But then there's the broader UK Parliament, which no longer includes Boris Johnson, the former Prime Minister, resigned. Why? Well, he seems to have made that decision, Steve, ahead of a committee report into misleading statements he made to Parliament about Downing Street lockdown parties, you may remember, during the pandemic. Sure. That could have sparked a recall election that could have lost him his parliamentary seat, and he seems to have jumped before he was pushed. It, it seems also to have sparked the resignation of at least two other members of the Conservative Party, meaning there are now three parliamentary seats that need to be contested in local by-elections in the weeks ahead. His successor, Rishi Sunak, has already seen an erosion to the vast parliamentary majority that Johnson helped win for them at the last general election. And with his party trailing quite a way behind the main Labour opposition, it could mean he loses those newly available seats. And the narrative ahead of Conservative defeat at the next election is further cemented, Steve. Bill and Marks, thanks so much. Thank you. Today, the first youth climate lawsuit to ever make it all the way to trial in the U.S. is being heard by a judge in Montana. Sixteen young people say state leaders are not addressing climate change and that violates the state constitution. Montana Public Radio's Ellis Julin has more. Badge Bussy is a 15-year-old high school student who lives near Glacier National Park. He and his older brother have grown up hunting and fishing in the mountains surrounding their home. It's hard to watch, like, the things that I love, like, get depleted slowly. Like, fishing with my dad is, like, my main way to hang out with him and my brother. Montana's Constitution, written in 1972, explicitly says citizens have the right to a clean and healthful environment. That's one reason this case has made it all the way to trial. Young people nationwide have filed dozens of lawsuits about climate change since 2015, but none have actually been heard in court until now. The Bussey brothers and their 14 co-plaintiffs say Montana's leaders need to establish limits on carbon emissions. They want us to figure out the exact effect that that's going to have on the global climate. Republican Gary Perry represents a coal mining town in the state legislature. Controls on carbon emissions are not popular among the politically powerful here. Perry spoke out against the state even measuring carbon emissions. And it's nearly impossible, and it's there specifically, to be an obstructionist um, measure for industry in this state. Republicans hold every statewide office but one in Montana, including the attorney general. He's defending the state in this case. The AG is not talking to the media about the kid's lawsuit, but in an emailed statement, he called it a show trial on laws that do not exist and a waste of taxpayer resources. This year, state lawmakers removed climate language in Montana's Environmental Policy Act, but the judge says the lawsuit can continue. The attorney general and others say the kids are being coached by the legal team or their parents into suing. Plaintiff Badge Bussey says this is their chance to be heard. I think about the, like, that our parents or that the lawyers are coercing us into doing this. I think, I don't really know what else to say besides the fact that this is our land as much as it is any other people's, and we just want to protect it, protect it for our kids and for ourselves. Getting their day in court has been no easy feat. Since the youth plaintiffs filed the case in 2020, the attorney general has asked the state Supreme Court to intervene twice, unsuccessfully. Last summer, the attorney general asked for more time to prepare, and a judge gave him six months. After everything that's happened these past two years, 
Badge's brother Landerbussy says the thought of finally taking the stand is surreal. It's kind of like a melancholy feeling for me going into it. We've had to fight so hard against an administration, a, a whole state that doesn't want us to be able to carry out our constitutional rights. The outcome of this landmark case could impact other children's climate litigation going forward in state and federal courts. Earlier this month, a federal judge in Oregon said she'll hear an amended lawsuit brought by a group of 21 kids from around the country. Initially filed in 2015, it was thrown out by the Ninth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals, which said their complaints should be addressed by the White House or Congress. In Montana, Lander Bussey says their case being taken up today is a chance to save what they love about their home. We're doing this first and foremost for the people of Montana who cherish and share this land and use it um, the same ways that we do and respect it the same way we do. The trial starts today in Helena and is scheduled to last two weeks. For NPR News, I'm Ellis Julin in Helena. While many parts of the world celebrate Valentine's Day on February 14th, Brazilians are having their day of romance and love today, June 12th. It's the result of some brilliant marketing and the fact that everyone's too busy in February because of Carnival. This afternoon on All Things Considered, listen by asking your smart speaker to play NPR or your local member station by name. This is NPR News. Coming up in 10 minutes on the Marketplace Morning Report, the number of youth employed in violation of federal child labor standards has more than doubled in the last five years. And a number of states are still loosening child labor laws. Mostly cloudy and low 80s today. Tonight it falls to the low 60s and there's a chance of showers and thunderstorms overnight. Tomorrow, low 70s and mostly cloudy with scattered showers possible. It's 68 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Refuge Point, finding lasting solutions for refugees so they can thrive. This World Refugee Day, learn how you can help at refugepoint.org slash WBUR. Stock of Cambridge-based Biogen is up in pre-market trading. The Food and Drug Administration backed full approval of the company's Alzheimer's drug on Friday. Trading of Biogen's stock was halted when the FDA made its decision public. Boston-based King Street Properties wants to build more lab space in Alston. The developer is asking the Boston Planning and Development Agency for permission to build a new lab building next to the existing Alston Labworks development. King Street says it hopes the new space attracts startup companies. Property owners in downtown Boston will keep the Boston Downtown Improvement District going for another five years. The bid supports ways to revitalize downtown by hosting events and supporting landlords that want to convert unused office space. The group tells the Boston Business Journal it's staying together so it can help the area recover from the pandemic. It's a 44. WBUR supporters include BMW. With a range of up to 301 miles, the BMW i4 is 100% electric and 100% BMW. The first all-electric BMW i4 is available at your local BMW centers. 
due to President Joe Biden's age, Vice President Kamala Harris is under a lot more scrutiny than number twos on the ticket usually are. Is she a liability or an asset to Biden's re-election campaign? She's the first black woman, the first woman, the first Asian American. She can speak to a huge swath of the Democratic Party in a very compelling way. That's On Point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Good morning. The singer Amore has a goal. She's Ghanaian-American and says her goal is to be the quintessential African princess of pop. She has a new album out, and our reviewer thinks she's on her way to that goal. Hi, my name is Tarisa Ngangora, and I'm here to talk to you today about Amore's new album, Fountain Baby. Do you want me to grow? I think what I like most is how experimental it is. She does a lot of cool things with her voice, with music choices, what genres she chooses to include, and I find that really interesting. I like the variety, I like the different kind of touch points that she brings to it, whether she's doing Southern rap on one song or whether she's doing R&B or pop on one song. It's all a fusion and it all works really well. I think on this album, she's really trying to show that variety because she wants people to really accept her as an artist with multiple interests and with multiple points of reference. So Amare, she's lived between the Bronx, Atlanta, and then also Accra. And so she's had this very sort of diverse upbringing that likely introduced her to a lot of various sounds and all of these kind of coalesced to create this artist who is just inspired by so many different things. Reckless and Sweet, that's a really good one. She really melds pop and there's just this very groovy Caribbean vibe to it and it works on the song. I think since Amari's debut, her music has become more confident. There's just this groundedness. She feels like someone who has stepped into her own and I think it takes quite a great deal of confidence to be able to try something new on each song as a young artist. Amare doesn't want to be put in a box. She doesn't want labels imposed on her. She wants to create these avenues that express who she really is as an artist. And if they don't exist in the world, she's going to make them for herself. I found similarities between her and Janet Jackson just in the ways their voices are. I think I heard it most on Big Stepper. So both of them have very light voices that are sort of deceptive because you hear them and you think there's nothing really happening. They're not like belting out ballads. It's always interesting to hear people who have gentle, delicate voices really play around with their tones and really play with their levels. And that's what Janet Jackson and Amare have similar. I 
So the song Big Steppa is dancehall inspired and it's also a pop song. It makes you want to get on the dance floor. But it has that earworm quality of every great pop song. Like once you hear it, you can't stop humming it in your head. Tarasai Gangura reviewing Amare's new album Fountain Baby. And this is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Leila Fadel. Coming up at the top of the hour on WBUR, it's the BBC News Hour. They'll have the latest on efforts by the European Union to regulate artificial intelligence technology, plus what's behind the strike by some communities on Reddit today. It's 849. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design, laurenholleran.com. And Zevin Asset Management, committed to impact investing and socially responsible portfolios for 25 years. Learn how to invest sustainably at zevin.com. Federal Indian boarding schools were designed to erase Native culture and have been widely condemned today. A handful of them are still open and encourage Native traditions. Because you can learn more about your culture. My mom went there and I just want to experience it. More on All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen today starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Monday morning. Pennsylvania's governor will issue a disaster declaration today after a fire caused the collapse of part of I-95. Ukrainian officials say they've recaptured four villages as part of their counteroffensive against Russian forces. And Italy's longest-serving premier, Silvio Berlusconi, has died at age 86. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR, on the WBUR mobile app, and at WBUR.org. WBUR supporters include the Worcester Art Museum with Frontiers of Impressionism, featuring works by over 30 artists, including Monet, Renoir, Cassatt, and more. Now open. WorcesterArt.org. Low 80s and mostly cloudy today. Right now it's 68 degrees in Boston. The largest bank merger in more than a decade. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Progressive. Progressive Commercial Insurance protects small businesses with customizable coverage options as unique as your business. More at ProgressiveCommercial.com. And by UiPath, providing organizations the UiPath AI-powered business automation platform. More at UiPath.com marketplace. UiPath, the foundation of innovation. From Marketplace, I'm Sabri Beneshore, in for David Brancaccio. UBS announced today that it's wrapped up its emergency takeover of Credit Suisse. The bank will now hold trillions of dollars worth of assets. Marketplace's Nancy Marshall-Genzer has the details. UBS agreed to take over Credit Suisse during this spring's banking crisis. The deal was arranged by Swiss authorities. They were worried about the stability of Credit Suisse. In a press release announcing the completion of the deal, UBS said Credit Suisse will continue to have its own branches. But UBS does plan to cut down on risk. It's expected to require Credit Suisse to comply with UBS restrictions on risk for some clients and loans. And UBS may decide not to do business with some Credit Suisse clients. Swiss officials 
officials brokered the deal because they were afraid that losses at Credit Suisse would trigger a run on the bank. The Swiss government agreed to a $10 billion guarantee against losses UBS might incur as it wraps up Credit Suisse's assets. I'm Nancy Marshall-Genser for Marketplace. With the labor market so tight, some employers have resorted to hiring more teens. The number of youth employed in violation of federal child labor standards has more than doubled in the last five years, according to data from the Labor Department. At the same time, a number of states are loosening child labor laws, Marketplace's Elizabeth Trovel reports. The Department of Labor found hundreds of workplaces in violation of these laws that protect minors, affecting nearly 4,000 kids. Fast food restaurants McDonald's, Subway and Dunkin' Donuts had the most violations, according to 2022 data. Many franchisees across many states have been investigated. Nina Mast is with the Economic Policy Institute. She says fast food restaurants have been dinged for working kids too many hours and in violation of protections against hazardous work. Particularly around the use of manual deep fat fryers and other hazardous equipment in the fast food industry. Mast's research found in the last two years, at least 10 states have passed or have pushed looser child labor laws. That includes lifting safety restrictions and extending work hours, which can hurt child development, says Dartmouth professor Eric Edmonds. If you're working eight hours at best, you're getting home then at 11. That's with no extracurriculars, no social development, no time to eat. He says children who work unsafe or unhealthy jobs are often from poor households. Some may even be coerced. I'm Elizabeth Troval for Marketplace. All right, let's do the numbers. Dow, S&P, and NASDAQ futures are all up in the 1 to 4 tenths percent range. Dow futures up 32 points. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Amazon Business, helping provide a smarter, easier way to get the supplies businesses need to thrive. Amazon Business, your partner for smart business buying. And by Palo Alto Networks. Palo Alto Networks delivers what's next in cybersecurity innovation to protect today's digital way of life. Learn more at paloaltonetworks.com. And by Grammarly, offering Grammarly business to help companies large and small communicate better and move faster with enterprise-grade generative artificial intelligence. Learn more at grammarly.com business. Food inflation has been stubbornly high for a while. It was 7.7% in April, compared to overall inflation of just 4.9%. We'll get the latest numbers for May tomorrow. The high price of food, though, has led some companies that make things we eat to fudge their ingredients, substituting cheaper options to save money. Here's the BBC's Leanna Byrne. When we're picking up our groceries or taking a bite into our meal, we'd like to think that what it says in the packaging is really what's inside. But as food and energy prices have ballooned in much of the world, so has the temptation to fake ingredients to make a bigger profit. There is an increased exposure risk here because all of the conditions are perfect breeding ground for someone if they want to step in and cheat the system to come in and do that. That's Dr. Terry McGrath, CTO and founder of food fraud detection company Bia Analytical in Belfast in Northern Ireland. He says it can be very difficult to spot many types of food fraud. So this here is an example of powdered oregano. It smells like oregano. It's a mixture of oregano and olive leaves. 
Via Analytical found that 25% of oregano that they tested had been adulterated. And that's when you make food or drugs of poor quality by adding some other substances to them. And whilst olive leaves won't kill you, in India, some more frightening-sounding additives are being used to bulk out products. Darpan Gupta, shop owner in Karari Buali Market in Delhi, says he sees it all the time. Products can be adulterated with dust, chemical or cheaper alternatives. For instance, in spices, mace can be adulterated with a cheaper artificial alternative called rampatri. Mitchell Weinberg is a global food fraud investigator. He set up his business, Inskatech, which is based in New York after getting food poisoning from eating contaminated ice cream while on holiday in China. He says, shockingly, his findings aren't always welcomed by companies. I know for investigations that I've done where I've uncovered problems that there haven't been recalls. The brand will be devastated by it and it will cost them a lot of money. Different countries have varying food safety laws. Penalties for breaking some of them include unlimited fines and, in serious cases, prison sentences. But back in the lab in Belfast, Terry McGrath says proper global regulation is desperately needed. You want something that pulls all of these different food groups together, because that's what gives you the transparency, where you have traceability, testing, weights and measures. Without that, the food investigator Mitchell Weinberg fears we will just see more widespread contamination like the recent milk scandal in China when tainted formula killed six babies. The only thing that will change it is if there is something that is really catastrophic that happens. As food companies face rising production costs, there's now more temptation than ever to cut corners with ingredients. Unless governments and companies start to work together to protect everyone. I'm the BBC's Liana Byrne for Marketplace. And I'm Sabri Beneshore with the Marketplace Morning Report. From APM American. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by JBS Home Inspections with condo common area inspections, as well as home inspections for buyers and sellers throughout Greater Boston. JBSinspections.com. And by Onova Scientific, a CDMO providing development and GMP manufacturing services for biologics. Bionova Scientific, where concept becomes cure. Morning Edition host Rupa Shanoi, and this is 90.9 WBUR FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.